If I'm wrong, people become resilient and more energy efficient for no reason. But if this other guy is wrong, then we're all screwed. Who's got the story right? Who's got it wrong? Let the debate begin. Hey everyone, it's Chris Martinson here today, and we are diving into the most important energy debate of our times. This one between the green chicken Duberg and myself. This isn't just about saving the planet or cutting back on emissions. It's about our economy, our health, our future prosperity, and our national security. If Doomberg is right, it's cheap oil for the rest of everyone's lifetime. If I'm right, the world's economy is in deep, deep trouble. Is there some middle ground here? Can we find it? Look, if you're someone who loves a good debate or is curious about different viewpoints, then you've come to the right place. In today's world, it is easy to get caught up in our own beliefs and opinions. But what if I told you that having a healthy debate with someone who has opposing views can actually make us smarter, more open-minded, and get us closer to the truth, whatever that is? Indeed, the only thing that can save us is to have honest discussions. This whole series was initially produced for my subscribers, but it's too important to keep behind our paywall. It's a series of three separate videos and are examples of how we go about having proper, open-minded conversations about vitally important topics that are shaping your world today. This is who Peak Prosperity is. This is how we roll. Hey, hello, everybody. We are back with you here. I'm pointing at my screen. Why am I doing that? I don't know. Because um, I'm looking at what's coming next. Listen, we're going to continue on with my rebuttal to Doomberg. We're going to get a little more detail here. I know. I know you love it. And if you if you think, ah, this oil stuff way over my head, I don't care. You really should care. Listen to the case once, store it in your head, then forget about it if necessary. But this really, really, really is important because energy is everything. It is the master resource. And I believe we're staring down the end of the Permian as a growth story, which is basically the end of the oil growth story in the world. And that is a just a that's a huge, huge moment in time. And I'm basing this on geology and the best data we have. If the data changes, I'll change, but let's go there and let's talk about this data. I think 2025 is when the trouble start at the latest. And it begins here with this idea. So quick summary from what I did on the public side. Hey, um, Dennis Coyne over at the peak oil barrel had this uh, analysis of shale of tight oil. I appended that onto arts chart of, of oil production. I think that's what the future looks like. That gets us out to about 2040 right there. Um, reasonable guess. Could be right. Could be wrong. Remember, this whole story is basically a story of the Permian. We went through these, these three layers. The Permian is the growth story. That growth story is now over if Dennis is right, if lots of other analysts are right. And by the way, I'll have other analysts on with their own models. We're going to be talking about this because it matters a lot. And of course, if that's true, then the entirety of the whole U.S. shale story is is then over. Again, this is where the trouble starts. Now, we're going to get into a, the detail that I think cements the case. And now on January 4th, Doomberg was just interviewed on Adam Taggart's channel. And he said this, he said, many of the constraints to releasing new oil supply are artificial and political. They're not inherent. They're not geological. I'm going to show you that they are geological and we can disagree or agree or not or whatever, but at least we're going to have some data. That's an assertion. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still rocking a cold. I don't like assertions without base data. So let's go there <coughs> further. He said 50 years from now, we'll be producing far more oil than we're producing today. And it will be affordable. 
that is an incredible claim. Far more oil than today. So this is doubly incredible. Why? Because if you know about compounding, we've been increasing our oil consumption at between one and a half and 2% per year. So that means in 35 years from now, at a 2% growth rate, right, we're going to be consuming twice as much oil, a full doubling on a daily basis. That means we would be consuming uh, 200 million barrels a day. We're struggling to get 81 million barrels a day of crude out. Now, we've confused that a little with some other stuff. There's some detail there. We'll go there. But this is amazing to me. 50 years from now, we'll be producing far more oil than we're producing today. And in fact, he said this. He said, in 50 years from now, if you ask me to take the over-under on millions of barrels of oil per day and set that over under at 140 million versus, you know, roughly a hundred today. Uh, I'd take the over. We grow 2% a year forever and we will. Whoa, let that sink in. That is quite the techno optimist view. It's just as, ah, oh, there's tons out there. Now, again, it all depends on the resource base. It really does. So to extrapolate that 2% a year, again, I mocked up Art's chart for you, for our benefit. This is what Doomberg sees coming in the future. Um, you know, whereas I said it looks more like, like this. He thinks it looks like this. Uh, that's extraordinary. Um, that would mean that, that we have roughly four times as much oil in the ground as we think we do. This would mean that, I don't know, we're able to get stuff out that nobody understands how we can get out. Maybe technology does figure out how to unlock that. You never know. Maybe we find a way to build thorium reactors and we just put steam underground and we just, you know, bubble it all off of the rock underground. I don't know. Who knows? But we have another fantastic report on peak oil barrel by this time by Ovi, uh, the analyst over there who goes by the name OVI, Ovi. There's the link. Let's look at this. This is really fascinating. Here's where we get down to the nuts and bolts in this whole thing. So First of all, all of the oil growth in the United States is really the tale of two states. This isn't 50, just two, Texas and New Mexico. And here we can see that from January of 2021 through till September of 2023, that the output in those two states, almost ruler straight, went from 57, well, 5.7 million barrels per day to 7.4 million barrels per day. That, that's an increase of 1.7 million barrels per day to round up. 1.691 million barrels per day increased just from those two states. All the other states, the other 48 combined, did were a giant nothing burger. So really, now we just have to constrain our analysis to these two states. We can kind of ignore the rest of them for this point, even though there's been a little rebound there, but it's mostly just sort of bouncing along there. And we would expect that to continue. Now, this matters because... Um, remember Doomberg said, oh, it's the technology. It just, we get stuff out more efficiently, but more efficiently just means that you take the resource that is there and you get it out of the ground cheaper or faster or both. It doesn't mean you get more out of the ground necessarily. For the most part, these technologies, some they're helping us get a little more out, but for the most part, it's just, how do you get it out of the ground a little bit cheaper, a little bit faster? Now, there's another analytical firm called Nova Labs, and they just put out this chart, which showed the top counties. These are all in Texas or New Mexico. Lee and Eddie are in New Mexico. Midland Martin are down in Texas. And here they're asking the question, well, um, you, you know, all that technology that, that were the three-story pump towers and, and we're, we're juggling the rig crews and moving the rigs around and drilling faster. 
that's all wonderful. But when you notice here, what they've done here is they've normalized the well output data to 10,000 foot lengths of laterals and said per 10,000 foot length, what are we getting out of the ground this year compared to two years ago or last year, all these other years. And you can see that for a beautiful period of time from 2012 to 13 to 15, 16, 17, 18 to 2019, it starts to flatten out a little bit. We were getting more and more and more out because the technology was getting better and better. It absolutely was. But then geology started to take over. And even though our technology is better, notice it's flattened out. And actually, since 2019, we're seeing that a surprising and significant drop-off in the output per normalized lateral foot of well. 20% decline in Lee County, which is one of the most prolific counties ever. Eddy County, Midland County, Martin County. Now, Lee, Eddy, and Martin, we're going to take a closer look at that because now we're not just down to two states. Now we're down to four counties. So let's go there and pull this analysis in. Here we find Lee County oil production. Again, Ovi does a fabulous job. I just love this presentation. In the red, we're looking at the gas output, which is going to become important in a minute. And in the green, we're looking at oil output. And we see from January of 2021, it went from uh, 660,000 barrels of oil. That's what KBD means. 660,000 barrels of oil per day coming out of just Lee County in New Mexico. And it went up to 1,050. Um, so that, that's a 390,000-barrel-per-day a, a advance. Remember, we're looking at the advance over time here. Look at that. There's 1.7 million barrels per day of, of new production, which is pretty much all of the new production coming out of the United States since January. Pretty much all of it's coming out here. And if we look at this, a huge portion of that actually was coming from Lee County. If you have a sharp eye, you're also going to notice that that green line is kind of getting a little flat there since about January. It's not going up. It's kind of flattening over. That's awkward. Eddy County. Ooh, here's another 330,000 barrels per day. Again, uh, that red link line is starting to get, um, sorry, the green line is starting to get a little flat. Oh, you know what I did? I messed this one up. I should have, I analyzed the red on the bottom. The gas is usually, sorry, I messed this up. This should be the higher one. So this goes from 400 to 700, that should be plus 300, not plus 330. But at any rate, even more awkwardly, now that I'm analyzing this on the fly, uh, notice the green from January is actually down. This is one of the most prolific counties in the United States, in one of the most prolific states, and it's actually down since January. What about Martin County? Uh, here we see plus 200 barrels, but again, kind of flat since actually 2022. That's awkward with the red line continuing to rise, which we'll get to in a minute. And this is important because there's something called the gas-oil ratio. That would be the ratio between the green and the red, the green and the red, the green and the red. Okay? Why is it important? Because under the ground, there's all this oil and there's gas at the same time. It's called associated gas. It's all mixed in there. That's, you know, it's the gas. We say that's mostly methane, but... Um, it, it could include a little bit of ethane, maybe some propane. But anyway, there's gas down there and oil. And when it's when you are first producing out of a well like this, you're going to have a gas-oil ratio that you can see is between those red lines right there where it's semi-bounded, right? So the gas and the oil are, are you know both coming out of the ground and you get a little more, a little less, but it's, it's stuck in a range. But then when the field starts to deplete, when you start to get less oil out, it starts to go gassy. 
and the gas-oil ratio begins to climb, more gas than oil. And you can see that, of course, when you see a red line pulling away from a green line, that means your gas-oil ratio is going up. And that means you have a mature field, and the gas-oil ratio climbs towards the end, and that means that you are on your way out, not on your way up. This is a mature field. So the GOR, the gas-oil ratio, matters a lot. And what we're looking at here... <clears throat> As you can see, it was in here for each one of these dots is a month and it's just bouncing along. This would be January of 2023, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. Oh no, you see this departure? Whee! It explodes out there. So Lee County, its gas oil ratio is blowing out. That would be very consistent with noticing that in Lee County, we're seeing this flattening out. We're getting less oil out even as they're drilling tons of wells and really pounding it and more gas is coming out of the ground. This tells us that we're geology is saying that this is closer to the end of the story than the beginning of the story. This is a mature field. It's GOR is beginning to blow out. What about Eddy County? Same thing. It started here. It wandered out and then it bounced in here for all these different months. This is December, 2023. And we come out and here's September it's again out of its range that it was in before. Same thing for Martin County, although it's not quite as dramatic and it's come back towards its box a little bit here. But Martin County, um, we would be seeing, doo, 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 uh, yeah, um, that the the gas oil ratio is is pretty good and widening out. So, what does that mean? Listen, if if this whole story of how much oil is coming out of the United States is really a story of two states which is really a story of four counties because these four counties that I put out here, Lee, Eddie, Martin, and did I put it in here? Um, the last one on this list right here, which was uh, Midland together. Those are account for 54% of all of this gain that we saw here of 1.7 million barrels per day, just from four counties. So now we don't have to analyze us oil production. Now we don't even have to analyze 50 states, not even 40 states, not even two states. If we want to understand 54% of all the oil growth since January of 2021, we only have to understand four counties. And that's because the oil people have coalesced because they figured out where the hot stuff is and they're all there and they're pounding away at it and doing the best they can. So <clears throat> given all of that, I think we can safely say that these four counties are now all mature. Their GORs are blowing out. It's just what the data says. All right. Here's a second way that we can um, begin to maybe find agreement or maybe more disagreement, depending with Doomberg. He says here, technology and politics aside, alarmists <sighs> also hold on to a definition of the commodity that's too narrow. There are hundreds of grades of oil trading hands around the world each day. And, true. And as refineries become more flexible in their ability to switch between them. True. The very definition of oil is undergoing a semantic shift in our view. Analysts would do well to adopt our preferred characterization of the stuff. Oil is any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. I'm going to take vast disagreement with that. <clears throat> so here's what he put in his, his chart, um, a chart in his article talking about these things called natural gas liquids. I'm going to demystify that for you. This would be called oil as long as this makes its way into a refinery. I'm going to show you why I disagree with that. But the EIA decided to agree with Doomberg, and we had this vast increase right here of late. 
And that was because the EIA decided to reclassify some stuff that was coming out of the ground as natural gas liquids and call it oil, crude oil. I can squint at it. They can, all right, I think they can make a case here, but you need to understand it just to make sure we're clear about this. Here's what they did. This is from uh, their table one in their, uh, in their report that they put out every month. And you can see here that they added the 688,000 barrels per day, which was a transfer to crude oil supply, which actually came from natural gas plant liquids. So they transferred some stuff here up to here and called it oil, but it was really coming out of natural gas liquids. It was coming out of say the Marcellus shale out of, um, you know, the Woodford, maybe out of, uh, you know, the Barnett, but it was coming out as a natural gas liquid and, or probably coming out of the Eagleford. And you can see here in the green arrows that we didn't do this in prior years. So comparing years to say, oh, the U S is now producing more oil than ever. It's not like they actually took this year back here and did the same trick and threw natural gasoline. And now we're comparing apples to oranges. They just started caught, <laughs> they relabeled stuff. And that's why, anyway, it's a little bit of a analytical crime. And by the way, editorially, I was so mad when, uh, we suddenly lost the ability to understand what herd immunity was. We can't art articulate what a woman is anymore. The difference between a case and an infection. We lost that ability in COVID. Um, what is a vaccine that's been redefined. Every time we get close to like some shared understanding that could be helpful, somehow the authorities come along and garble it up and relabel things and call things different things. And then we don't have shared understanding anymore. And if you want to build shared understanding, you have consistent terms that mean the same thing this year and next year. And if you need new terms, you put those into play, right? We don't call it oil. If it's not oil, we call it oil plus something. And then we tell you what the plus is and we can all make sense of it. So at any rate, this is what they did. Now, why does it matter? What is a natural gas liquid? Let's demystify it. Um, it's this, it's, it's things here. This is carbon one, carbon two, two carbons, two carbon atoms come together. There's hydrogens, three arranged around each of them because carbon likes four bonds. And that would be called ethane. Ethane means two carbons. Propane means three carbons. Butane means four carbons. There's two ways you can put that together as a straight chain. That's, that's butane or isobutane where it's three plus one stuck on the end there, um, in the middle, but butane, I think we can all agree. Butane isn't really, that's not something we would put into our car's engine. Really? Um, it could be maybe mixed with gasoline a little bit, but it would volatilize and vaporize out because as you know, at room temperature, when you take a lighter and you just push the little plunger down on a butane lighter, you hear that hissing. You know why that butane comes out? Because it doesn't want to be a liquid at normal atmospheric pressures. It wants to volatilize. It wants to be part of the atmosphere again. That's why it works. Like, shh, right? Um, so uh, we don't tend to put it into gasoline because it just, poof, it, it vaporizes and becomes very explosive. Um, so it tends not to go in there. Pentane, now we're talking natural gasoline. That's five carbons and pentane plus, which is some sort of mixtures of things a little bit longer. Now, those two things, pentane, pentanes plus, when you get those out as natural gas liquids, those are the things that they're shoving back in here, oops, back in and calling it oil. Okay, that, that's fair, but it doesn't need any refining. Um, it's basically natural gasoline. Now, here's why this chart of natural gas liquids doesn't tell me anything useful because ethane is not, it does very different things from propane, which does very different things from butane and pentane. 
they're all just different things, right? You would never say, oh, you know what? I'm out of butane. I'll use ethane today, right? It doesn't work that way. They're totally different substances. And the reason it matters is when you find, when you look at what the EIA puts out, the natural gas liquids that are coming out of the ground, 72% of them are ethane and propane. Can't use them at all. They can't go into a refinery. If you said your definition of oil is any hydrocarbon that can find its way into a refinery, you wouldn't willingly put ethane and propane into a refinery because you just have to get them back out again because they have no business being in there unless you're going to use them to crack and combine onto something. But otherwise, eh. And oh, by the way, if you collectively, these things have 60% of the energy output on a per barrel basis is oil. So if you took them and just burned them and said, how many BTUs come out of these things? Collectively, they have a lot less energy in them than a barrel of oil, which is a lot more energy dense. So a barrel isn't even a barrel at that point. We would have to compare them on a BTU basis, but even that's kind of useless because what really matters is the energy content they have and the utility they have on an end use basis. Ethane, awesome stuff. We tend to put it into um, plastics manufacturing more than anything else. Propane good stuff. We tend to liquefy it and put it into stoves and camper bottles and we send it overseas and people burn it because it's awesome, clean burning stuff. Um, but that's what we use it for. Butane, it goes into chemical processes and we use it as butane and it's got heating purposes. They're all very different. So again, to call oil anything that sort of comes out of the ground that's a hydrocarbon, I think is unnecessarily vague and not very helpful. In fact, I think it obscures where we are in the story. And by the way, this is the story. Um, these little things, uh, the, the lighter, the color, the lighter, the stuff coming out of the ground. I think you can clearly see that from 2015 to 2020, which is what that chart goes from everything coming out of the ground was lighter. Was that sort of blue to light blue stuff? Um, it, it, API is a measure of gravity, how light it is. And the higher the number, the lighter it is. So we're basically getting the super light stuff out. By the way, we're exporting that like crazy because our refineries don't like that stuff. Our refineries like the heavy stuff. You know why? Because you get awesome stuff out of the heavy stuff. You get diesel, jet fuel, asphalt, which you need for making roads, etc. Waxes, all kinds of stuff. All right. So that's what we're getting out of the ground. Now, this is really a story. This story that I've been telling, this is really a story actually of just these two formations in Texas and New Mexico. One is called the Wolf Camp. One is called the Bone Spring. These are formations deep underground. And the Wolf Camp is a layer of, of, of old marine bed that's down there. If you got all the way down there and cut through, it would be a cross section. It would be a dark, oily sort of looking marly, you know, substance. It's a rock. So <clears throat> those two formations... If you look at this whole chart, it's really a story of the growth in those two. That's since 2019, all the growth that we've gotten has come out of the Wolf Camp and the Bone Spring. Everybody else is either flat to down. Okay. Now this matters a lot because again, you know, the evidence here is like, oh, we're just going to get this stuff out of the ground more efficiently. We're just, you know, all that. But the real truth is that we're seeing a lot less coming out of the ground per lateral foot in Lee, Eddie, and Martin, um, Midland and Martin counties. And where are those? Well, here's Lee and Eddie in, this is New Mexico. This is the, the South, uh, East corner over here. And here you can see Eddie County is this square blob here. And this is Lee County here. Boop. And here you can see that within here, this, um, we have the bone spring, which is sort of this darker orangey tan color here. And then the wolf's camp is this and this here. 
So and this is Martin County and this is Midland County. So literally all the growth, practically 54% of all the growth and all the oil coming out of the U.S. is coming from Eddie, Lee, Martin, Midland. <coughs> Excuse me. One second. You should see the tissues over here. Just a second. My bad. All right. So I just want to really point out that 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 when we talk about, hey, technology is going to be amazing and we'll always get more, that we're not, we're really down to just four counties that you could drive around in a, in a day fairly easily. It's just this little tiny spot, which is amazing and it's awesome, but it's not a forever, forever story. I'll say carrying on. Um, so Doomberg said, but do, so does this mean we are bearish oil in the short term? Not necessarily. Could the price of oil explode higher in weeks and months ahead, especially in dollar terms? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. The economy is always a single geopolitical disaster away from a huge short-term spike in, in highly inelastic commodities. But is peak cheap oil pending in absolute terms, not in our lifetime, which is the ultimate time frame that matters at least to us? End quote. First, editorially, I disagree with that on every possible term. It is not our job to not worry about stuff just because it's in our lifetimes. It is our job to leave behind a better world for those who come after us. To say, oh, I'm not worried about the soil on my property because I've calculated that by the time I'm dead, it'll still all sort of be functioning. It'll mostly be gone by then, but I don't care because I'll be dead. That is a highly selfish, selfish point of view. One I disagree with entirely. Okay, so editorially, I will say that and I'm done. Here is the bear case for oil supply. It rests on the idea that the geology is limited. There aren't infinite amounts that we're running out of the easy places. We're going to have to go after the more expensive stuff. And it starts here. The oil price, say, spikes for some reason. Well, as a consequence of that, steel and labor costs end up going up because everything hinges off the price of oil. That means the drilling costs go up, which means that more marginal oil fields end up being produced. These are the places, it's not worth it. Oh, now it's worth it. At $200 a barrel oil, oh, we'll drill that. But you know what that means? That we get less oil out of the ground and we get more expensive oil is produced. And so oil prices keep going up and you have a spiral, which is like the worst is we go down the curve of resource, assuming that I'm right, and I'm not catastrophically wrong, that the resources are are actually limited in supply. And I think I've made the case for that, that we see the, the end of the Permian story, which is basically the end of the U.S. oil growth story. If that's true, technology doesn't find a way to magically unlock 2x more than we thought was there, in which case it just puts this story off for a period of time. And then 10 years from now, we revisit it, right? Um, if that's If that's the case in a shrinking resource base, we see this spiral happen. This is the bear case. Prices go up. And because prices go up, we actually end up getting less out of the ground over time, not more paradoxically, because the cost to get it out of the ground is constantly always just in front of the cost to get it out of the ground. Um, you know, the price you get for it is just, is, uh, the cost, the cost to prosecute that is always more than you're getting for it. Um, then it's a, a disaster, right? So we're seeing that in silver. The price of silver has been below what it costs to get new mines done. Copper, it's below the cost of opening a new mine. Tin, it's below the cost of opening a new mine. So you know what? We're not opening new mines. Whoops. 
that's going to lead to a very persistent um, shortage over time, and it will not resolve if it is always true that the price you receive on the market is less than the cost it would take to go get more of it out of the ground. Sooner or later, that has to happen. Okay, here's the bull case. The bull case is that um, producers are incentivized. Oh, oil prices go up. Producers, hey, they're incentivized. Let's go get more. Yeah, they, more oil is produced. Oil prices go back down again. Supply gets a little low. Oil prices go back up again. Producers are incentivized. More oil is produced and around and around we go. This has been true for a long time because we haven't had to worry about geological limitations. But Russia's said they're at their geological limit. Saudi Arabia's hinted that they are. The United States is clearly approaching its geological limit. I've presented in the past a chart showing that 51 separate oil-producing countries are on the downslope of their production. How many more pieces of data do we need to say, hey, that might be a thing? Now, this is why it matters. The bull case always depends on abundant resources that, in fact, that Dennis's chart is not true. In fact, if we had technology come forward that was really amazing and people got really clever and they, you know, did, they get way more oil out of the ground than we thought, there's only so much that's in there to get out. And so all that happens is you just get it out faster. So, so this curve bends this way, it goes up and then down, or you could stretch it out and you could come down and then have a much longer tail like that. doesn't matter. It is what it is. You decide for geological, less than geo, you decide for political and economic reasons. How much do I want to get out of the ground? I might want to rip it out of the ground faster. The fact that the United States editorially is that the Federal Reserve printed money and drove the interest rate down so that people were incentivized with cheap money to go get more oil out of the ground so that we could rip it out of the ground faster. In fact, so fast that all we could really do was put it in boats and send it to China. It was one of the stupidest things we could ever do for the future. That was a national resource that absolutely should not have been commoditized just so people could earn more paper promise tickets, which we call dollars. That was dumb, uniquely dumb. So back to Peter's question. Um, what if something's off in this calculus, right? What if, what if it turns out that, you know, this whole thing might just be, is, are we 10 years off in this story? Are we 20 years off? Is it here? Where are we in this story? Now it's confusing because the headlines talk about this. This is a recent chart showing us exports of crude oil. Look at that. Whoosh, right. That thing there starting about 2012, the United States is now exporting almost 4 million barrels per day of oil, wait, oil, because when we actually decompose that, we find out that the U.S. is still importing lots of crude oil. That's that blue stuff on top. We are exporting refined products, which is some of that natural gasoline, right? Because we don't need all that gasoline because some of it's coming out of the ground is natural gasoline and natural gas liquids, but we're calling it oil. So now we're, now we're exporting butane and propane and counting it as oil exports. So when you hear about all that oil we're exporting, oil, because it includes everything from propane, butane, natural gasoline, which is coming out not from oil itself, but from some other entire process. And the EIA even says so. Um, and this chart only goes up through 2021. I would love to see what it is for the last two years, but they have not updated this chart. Now, here's where it gets fun. So this is the story of Saudi America, plucky can do. When you look at this, including natural gas liquids, the United States is now a net exporter of oil, right? Once we strip out natural gas liquids, propane, butane, all that stuff, we find out that the United States is still a net importer of about two and a half million barrels per day of oil. But that's way less than we used to, right? We used to import 
12 million barrels a day, practically. I mean, it's just like, I mean, uh, 13 million practically. And then this long, slow ride down from 2008 with the shale miracle, the mistake would be to think, well, that's the permanent state of things. Because as we know, maybe the United States miracle here of shale peaks around 2025-ish and then goes down to 2040, where it's barely a million barrels per day coming out of the shale space. What does that mean? Let me append this with my magic shaky blue pen hand over here. This is the past. You saw that? This is me projecting what happens. If this is true, then this is true. This is what it looks like. The United States goes back to importing 10, 12, 13 million barrels a day. Question, from who? Who are we going to import that from? They're, they're not it's Russia and Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Those are the two main top one, two exporters, right? Canada's exporting a bit. That's nice for us. Uh, maybe Guyana and Suriname and Venezuela down there on the North coast of South America. Maybe they can get their act together and start exporting quite a bit. Um, but even if Guyana really hits its stride, it's maybe going to get up to a million barrels a day. Now, now don't let me knock that. That's 1 million barrel a day. But when we look at the collective Middle East output, unlikely that that's going to be able to produce stuff. And particularly when we look at the JP Morgan analysis, which comports with, say, this analysis. So if this is true of the United States coming down like this, then Dennis's thing is true where we have this sort of, let's use the blue dotted line, which comports with the JP Morgan analysis. Everything sort of conciliance coming together, analyzing from different directions, saying, oh, there's going to be less stuff in the future, right? So by 2040, if the world is actually going from 80, let's call it 82 million barrels a day down to 70 by 2040, right? Well, then it raises an awkward question. So that's missing 12 million barrels a day, but the United States is going to want to be importing 12 million barrels per day, but the world is down 12 million barrels a day. And by the way, India and China have very strong designs on wanting that oil. But the United States is going to want to import that, but it doesn't exist to import because there's actually less available for import, but the United States wants to import it so that it can maintain its living standards, which are non-negotiable. What happens? And what happens is we find out that the United States is going to have burned through its shale miracle because of geology. <coughs> oh, sorry. Um, I do that as input four. Ha ha. Now you just see the charts. <coughs> one more cough. Um, yeah, sorry. So I, I should have, when I was doing these, I, sh I should have uh, been out of the frame. So this is the story we have. The shale miracle, I think line of sight, it's over. It was, it was fun while it lasted. The United States is going to be reverting to a net importer scenario faster than most people think. Not on anybody's bingo card out there in the investing community right now. We see that the world is actually going to be facing this whole larger thing and the world is going to want more and more and more oil <coughs> because that's right. Oil is the lifeblood of every economy. <coughs> Excuse me one second. All right. So what happens? Well, we'll be damned lucky if we avoid war with China. And of course, the preamble for this has already started. And we're starting to see more and more chatter. They're writing about it in Defense One, Maxwell Air University, Forbes. Everybody's writing about it. It's a thing. Preparing for war with China, 25 to 2032. Well, of course, we're going to have to go to war with China. They're going to want to use our oil. Here's the problem. Russia has just taught us that 
they can very easily and almost completely defeat modern U.S. armaments. Sure, every so often a HIMAR sneaks through, every so often a Storm Shadow sneaks through, but compared to the amount that are being launched, the success ratio, kind of small, and Russia's getting better and better at intercepting them. So, oops, that technological advantage, gone for the moment in this larger cat and mouse game. Two, you discover it's really hard to protect oil in large, slow floating tankers against things like mines, missiles, submarines. Almost impossible to protect your oil coming from the Middle East across thousands of miles of open water. It's going to be very, very difficult and expensive and deadly. So this is happening. Um, I hope it doesn't. China, by the way, has a winning energy strategy. This is part five of their energy strategy. I presented it a while ago. And I like how they put this. They say, let me get my um, my little drawing tool out here because I do want to do this uh, pen. Let me see if I can get this going. Yeah, so they say they want to actively create a new situation in international energy cooperation. That's how they roll. And uh, this year marks the... Uh, Anniversary of the joint construction of the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, oh, Belt and Road. Uh, that's all on land for the most part. And that means that China gets to walk to, drive to, take a train to the energy that they want and the resources they want. They don't have to compete with the U.S. in an open blue water Navy. Kind of smart. Um, so that's what they did, I think, for uh, good reason. And this is uh, energy cooperation. They're big on cooperation, right? Uh, and that's what they wanted to do. And they firmly pursue a mutually beneficial win-win strategy uh, for everybody. So they win, their partners win. Iran, color me crazy, might be more inclined to go with a partner like China who says, hey, you be you, we'll do some things that really benefit you. You do some things that benefit us and nobody has to get feisty about any of this. And and like, hmm, we could do that. Or the United States is going to bully us into giving us their oil probably while killing us at the same time. One of these two strategies is more viable. I know which one I go with diplomacy always, but um, United States is not there. We are a raw nation led by midwits at this point in time. Unfortunately, uh, look at them. They want to further promote mutually beneficial cooperation uh, with key energy resource countries. And, and so this is how they keep talking about all of these things. It's like, hey, we're going to energy cooperation, win-win. We do all of these things. And so China clearly understands where they need to go and what they need to do. Now, Doomberg says here, you know, uh, this, you know, it's, this is just Malthusian techno-pessimism. This is geological realism. It's not techno-pessimism. It's just geological realism. A shale basin, an oil field has X amount of oil in it. Maybe you can find ways to more effectively stimulate that field and get more out today than you could 50 years ago. That's true. But there's always going to be a limit, of course. Where is that limit? That argument, that discussion has to rest on the data. Full stop. What are the resources? What are the technologies? How much is there? Tell us your assumptions because if you're wrong, well, let's go there. Let's talk about this. Um, if, remember, it's all back to this, like this chart requires everybody participating in it to believe that the future is going to be larger than the present. Otherwise, the holders of that $93 trillion in debt, if they're thinking like we're thinking, they're going, I don't know if I want to hold $6 trillion worth of 
30-year U.S. Treasury bonds. What does the world even look like in 30 years if we're going to be all fighting over the remaining dregs of oil in the next 17 years? Oops, 16 years. That gets us to 2040. 16 years. 2040 is closer than 2008. That's terrifying. As close. At any rate, if you hold that, you're like, I don't want to hold a 30-year bond. I'm not even sure how we get to 16 years from now, right? So so once you have that, that thought, this debt accumulation doesn't make sense anymore because there's a jubilee baked into this story where the old jubilee was the king would announce that after seven periods of seven every 49 years, there would be this jubilee. Well, guess what? In that last period of seven, people didn't make a lot of loans. They started to wind them down because if you were left holding a loan at the end of that last seven periods of seven, you were holding the bag. That thing got canceled. You were out. So it was a self-limiting function. The same time the world catches up to the idea that you don't want to think in 75-year horizons. In fact, we can't even be sure about the next 10-year horizon. In fact, we're a little squirrely about what happens over the next five because of this oil story. Until such time as fusion energy comes along or thorium comes roaring out of the gate at scale or there's alien technology or we find out that the Arctic has a creamy nougat center that once it melts, we can get to it and it's all oil. Until something changes, this is the data we have. So what do you do with data like this? Well, one of two things happens. If Doomberg is right, then this carries on like this for the rest of our lives. More and more and more debt. Nobody says a thing about it. The can gets kicked down the road. I'm wrong. I'm catastrophically, you know, profoundly wrong. And Doomberg's view is right. He says 2% oil growth a year forever. That's what's going to happen. But if I'm right, it looks more like how Hidden OG put it here on Twitter in response to my earlier tweet. <laughs> that's what that's what it looks like. Yep. Um, so what do we do with that? I'll tell you what. Here's what we do. To prepare for this future that I'm talking about, this is a non-trivial task because everything, everything hinges on this. Everything is connected to everything. You oil is is everything. It's like it's it's just surrounding us. It's the air we breathe. It's 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 the water we swim in as fish. It's everywhere and in everything. And I can't even I barely can conceive of what it means to live in a future where it's constrained. But to get your mind around it, think about how your life changes if, if tomorrow you wake up in gasoline, buy all you want, but it's twenty five dollars a gallon. Obviously, things change. Uh, people no longer need that Jeep Wagoneer. They no longer can live forty miles from work. A lot of jobs that sort of made sense no longer make sense whatsoever. In fact, when the dust settles on that, we find that that less amount of oil and gasoline and diesel flowing through our economy because it's so expensive means that there's just fewer things happening. There's fewer jobs, fewer job classifications, a lot of people out of work. Maybe they're getting universal basic income. Who knows how that, how that plays out. But the way you prepare is you have to hit as many of these things as you possibly can. You have to have a good financial plan. You got to be nimble. You got to make sure that you know exactly what you're doing. That's what we do with peak financial investing and with Paul Kiker's group. Uh, get a plan. You need a plan and you need to know how to be nimble within that plan structure. You need to understand what you're going to do from emotional capital standpoint. You're going to have to be, t listen, what I'm telling you here is so profound. I can't even get my mind around it. But we know from the adjustment reaction that if this is true, anything you do today, in response to this data, it's going to feel like an overreaction. But in five or 10 years, you'll understand it was a complete underreaction. If it's right. So here's the here's the question. Where's this thesis gone off? What's wrong? Where, where, where are we at? Uh, you know, how could we how could we have this wrong? 
at this point in time. Where's that? Where's that extra source of oil that we all are going to need? Where? Where? Not hand wavy technology will think of something. Humans are clever monkeys. Which fields? Which counties? Which countries? Which oil field services workers? Tell me, right? Because that's where we are in this story. But we're going to be talking about this. This is what this year is about at Peak Prosperity. We have to be talking about how we build all of these eight forms of capital. I need to undergo this more and more. As prepared as I am, I feel woefully unprepared. I can't wait to, to push forward and do more of this. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Together, we'll work this out. That's that's how it's going to have to be. There's so much that needs doing at this point in time. We're going to have to prioritize. We're going to have to be judicious with our use of energy, with resources, with time, with money, if this is all true. So first thing, let's talk about how I have this all wrong. Bring your data. Let's have that conversation. Let's make sure that we do all the convincing of self and other that we need to, to make sure that we've got this right. And then part two, let's talk about what do we do? Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, this was a pretty deep rabbit hole for me and pop, I'm back up and out. Thanks for listening. Bye. And that brings us to the end of part two. Part three is my rebuttal to Doomberg's rebuttal that to be fair was only in response to part one. So I don't know yet what his response will be to part two, which goes into the Permian basis. However, he did respond. And part three here now is my response to that. In his rebuttal, Doomberg argued that there's a proven technology out there which can put a permanent ceiling on the price of oil at between an eye-popping $18 to $60 per barrel for the inputs. Now, can this be true? Or is it missing some vital context? I think it's an overly glib analysis that fails to do some math, but you don't have to believe me. As always, I'll bring the receipts so you can make up your own mind.